Even the idea that plants can learn and have memory, remember and all of that is new and the data are new. I don't really see myself as a voice for plants because the plants have their own voice. And all I can tell people is like, go and listen. Hey, I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and that voice you've been hearing is Associate Professor Monica Gagliano. Now, she's an evolutionary ecologist at the University of Sydney who studies plant behaviour. Yep, Monica has been performing groundbreaking experiments over the years that test the cognitive abilities of plants, including perception, learning processes, memory and consciousness. But before she started working with plants, she was a marine ecologist. And her story starts up in North Queensland, on the Great Barrier Reef. Most of my work was always out in the field, in nature, and I had this experiment running. I was uh, visiting these wild animals, wild fishes, uh, every day. And I would spend like lots of hours underwater, you know, just you know, observing and looking at what they were doing and mom and dad and fighting and whatever else. And then something that maybe the, the general public doesn't know so much, but a lot of the research in animals requires the animal to die at the end. As animal ecologists and animal biologists in general, uh, we are trained to think that that's okay. Because the people that he's teaching us, are, well, they were also trained to think that that is okay. Now, Monica says there's a pretty clear reason they do this. When you're trying to publish a paper on animal behaviour that doesn't contain uh, some chemical analysis of what was happening in the liver at that time or what was happening in the gonads or the brain, so some body part that is kind of corroborating, apparently, uh, the, the observation of the external behavioural response, uh, then it becomes really hard to, well, first of all, for the science to be published and second, to be accepted as valid. But after months in the field with these fish every day, Monica says she felt it was natural to develop an attachment to them. And those relationships builds over time, especially if you spend so much time in nature. Oh, the, the female at number four, uh, she's very chill out and she's very nice and she comes close, she's very friendly. You know, and we use these words. Did you see the male and number 35? Yeah, it's a nutter. And they always try to bite you and you know, that kind of thing. So you literally get to know them as individuals. But despite that, at the end of the experiment, Monica did what was expected of her. Because of the conditioning that we receive through our educational system, um, despite that experience, I went back and I killed them all. I went and collected my samples and my, for my data points and for my paper that needs to be published and all of that. And, uh, of course, that was the last time I've ever did that. It took Monica a while, but she says those events changed her life forever. It took me 10 years to understand how pivotal that moment was, not just for my career, which, of course, changed completely, uh, but also at the personal level, because I couldn't tell this story for 10 years. The first time I, I shared it in a, you know, official academic uh, space, I just felt like they're going to think I'm crazy. And instead there was people in tears, there was people like, that was so touching. After that experiment, Monica got a fellowship in Perth in Western Australia. The project that I had for my fellowship was going to be on fish, but I was like, I, I can't do it. 
And I don't want to tell them that I can't do it, otherwise I don't have a job. And I was trying to think, how am I going to do it, but not the way in which I said I would do it. And, and then at the same time, uh, because we just moved, I started a veggie patch. And that saved my life as a scientist. She started to wonder, what if I work with plants instead of animals? Oh, if I need to take a sample, I don't need to kill the plant. Maybe I can just take a leaf and that's enough, right? As I started engaging with the plants, literally like planting them in my veggie patch, uh, then ideas of like, oh, I wonder, I wonder if people had, had looked at, uh, you know, our plant communicate or our plant behave or our plant do this and that. And, and of course, the surprise was that actually the answer was yes. So then I started looking for what was missing. Monica has since undertaken some amazing experiments in the area of plant behaviour. And she says a lot of her success has to do with her approach to something she says science can sometimes forget about, imagination. You first need to literally imagine something possible for you to even ask the question. So for me to ask the question of like, oh, do plants communicate? I needed to even consider the fact that, could they? Like, it doesn't mean that they can. It's not like uh, that by asking the question I already uh, settled the answer. But it's more like, can we at least ask? And then science enters in the picture when it's like, oh, here is a method that you could use to explore that question. So Monica started to explore what is known as bioacoustics. <laughs> as often in science, a big term to say something really easy. Sound communication in plants. That's really the translation of how plants might use sound in their life. Yeah, as strange as that may sound, Monica's experiments have proven that some plants react to sound. And they're not just detecting any sound, but they're very selective on what they're responding to. And so then the next question would have been, how do you choose which one you are interested in or not? To answer that, Monica put herself in a plant's shoes, or rather its roots. If I was the plant, what would I want to listen to? And the three major things, I guess, that you would want to know about in terms of your environment would be like, where is my food? <laughs> who is going to eat me? And who is going to help me to reproduce? Right? So um, I went for the food. And of course, one vital food source for plants is water. Water is one of those that is always moving. You know, and it would be moving underground, it would be moving inside the pipes that we build, uh, it, it moves when it comes down from the sky, you know, it's always in movement. So if something is moving, it's creating vibration, and sound is a mechanical vibration, so it's like, okay, you know, here we go. So how exactly did she conduct her experiment to see if plants react to sound? I actually had water, real water, running through a pipe. I put them in a maze, they had two choices. Like either you go towards the, where the sound of water is, or where the pipe is, or you can go the other way. And whenever there was the pipe, of course the control was like, there's not, nothing moving, and they would go, you know, half and half. So there was nothing, the option of nothing, or to go towards the sound of water. Yeah. So, and I mean, all, there's no other variable. And they all go. You know, and if you, instead of having the, the water sealed inside a pipe, but if you actually have water, like real, a tray with water in there, they go to it with the same efficiency. 
So whether they can sniff it or hear it, for the plants, it's like, yeah, I know, it's water. It's as simple as it is. Amazing, right? So if plants are able to detect and react to sound, what else might they be able to do? Well, there was this other amazing experiment Monica performed. One that was inspired by a famous study called Pavlov's dog, conducted by Ivan Pavlov. The, the basic experiment was like, oh, ring the bell and then followed by dinner. And, uh, and the dog is all excited because there is dinner. And then again, and then again. And then after a while, the dog starts to realise something. Oh, wait a second. Every time this bell rings, which didn't mean anything to me, dinner comes. So then Pablo just ring the bell, no dinner coming, but the dog is salivating, thinking like, I know dinner is coming after this. So there is the association between something that is meaningless at the beginning, the bell, and it becomes meaningful. The dog, in, in, in this specific case, needs to make the association, which means that he also needs to evaluate whether how much do you want dinner? And so how much value do you give to this bell? Because if you didn't care about dinner, it's like the bell will never acquire any meaning because I don't care about dinner anyway. So it's a subjective value system. So Monica thought, I wonder what happens if you try this with plants. So essentially she replaced the dog with peas. Yep, peas. In this case, the bell was uh, a little fan and the dinner... Uh, for the plant was blue light. And these are little baby plants, so they really like blue light for, for early growth. And of course, they really want it. This is exactly like the dog really wanted dinner. And so the fan, when you test the fan on its own, doesn't do anything. And then though, over time, and this is like over three days, you present the fan, always followed by the light. So bell, dinner, fan, light. And then suddenly uh, you present only the fan. Once again in this experiment, the plants were in a maze with two directional choices. Towards the fan and the light, or away. So in the last day, you only present the fan on the opposite direction of where they saw the light last time. So you're asking them, okay, here is your instinctual response to, you know, do your phototropic response, which is innate, and move where you saw the light last time. But I'm actually asking you, if you learned what I tried to show you, I'm asking you to go the opposite direction and trust this fan that doesn't mean anything, or at least it didn't mean anything. And they trust the fan. That's right. The blue light was removed and it was just the fan the peas started moving towards. So just like Pavlov's dog, Monica says that the plants were creating a value system. If you accept that the dog is creating a value system and is a subjective system and is a, there is anticipation, then you have to accept that the plant is doing the same because it's, it's doing exactly the same taste and is uh, passing exactly with the same flying colours. Even though this may sound surprising, Monica says it's just evolution doing its thing. Evolution tinkers with materials that are already available. So this is just a specialization in a way of something that was already there present as a structure and definitely as a process. And so what the plant is saying is I, this process that you think is just relegated to you know, the realm of animal, we can all do this. And in fact, if you think about it, if you couldn't learn, if you couldn't remember what happened to you yesterday and you had to go all the time, you know, learn by, uh, from scratch every single experience, you will be dead pretty quick. 
So learning is not just this optional thing, but learning to me is fundamental for adaptation and therefore the the evolutionary process as a whole. So, it's clear from Monica's research, whilst revolutionary, there's still plenty more to understand when it comes to plants and their ability to learn. But even when it comes to human brains, it's not like we've got it all figured out there either. There's so much we don't know yet about how our own minds deal with all sorts of things, like consciousness, self-identity, and memory. I was always interested in memory because when I was growing up, I was one of these children that just remembered everything and so I'd always win memory competitions and games at parties and I'd remember every detail of arguments and you know I could be called in as to when something happened or not at home. That's Associate Professor Murren Irish, a neuroscientist from the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. She works in the field of cognitive neuroscience. It's a branch of neuroscience that's trying to basically relate how the biology of the brain enables us to think and to have memories and to engage in complex processes like language. So it's trying to find the biological underpinnings of all of these complex cognitive phenomena. Murren's career path to cognitive neuroscience was driven by an unfortunate diagnosis in her family. Around the time that I was trying to decide what I was going to do um, post-school, I was debating about doing medicine. And at the same time, my grandmother actually was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. So she was this phenomenal woman who had an incredible memory. And this started to unravel like before our very eyes. So she started losing the experiences that we had shared together. And so we watched this gradual decline over many years. Driven by her passion to help understand what was happening to her grandmother and so many others around the world, she says she vividly remembers when she realised this was the scientific field for her. I remember sitting, it's a very vivid memory, sitting in the lecture theatre and just thinking, this is exactly what I want to do. This is, this is it. And so I started specialising in memory, trying to understand how vulnerable populations who have brain damage or brain trauma or degeneration due to um, dementia, how that's affecting these really complex thoughts and memories that we really take for granted. When you say you had a vivid, it's a vivid memory, and I think everyone can relate to that feeling, what makes a memory, what makes one more vivid than the other, and why are some lost? Yeah, so that's one of the fundamental questions that memory researchers and cognitive neuroscientists are trying to just get a handle on and we still don't have a hard and fast answer to that question but I think there are certain um, different ingredients that perhaps make memories vivid over other ones. Murren says that one of the key things to making a memory vivid is if it has a level of personal relevance or if it references the self. And we know that self-referential memories tend to be experienced in higher sort of visual imagery. They're more emotionally salient. And so that leads on to emotion, which is a key modulator of memory. And so it's a sort of a unique combination of personally relevant, emotionally relevant and emotionally salient memories, and maybe just other sort of connections that they were self-defining as well at that point. In Morin's case, that emotional salience came from her grandmother. 
me sitting in that lecture theater that sort of started the next chapter for me and so I can identify that as a very definitive moment that changed the way my sort of life and career progressed. Now memory in humans can be divided into different types. Short-term memory is of the order of seconds so it's really it is very finite and it's we can only hold certain amount of information in our short-term memory at any given time but then we have to make a conscious effort to get that information into long-term memory. Here's an example I think we can all relate to. Someone shouts their phone number to you and says you know give me a call and you have to keep that information in mind as you know and rehearse rehearse in your working memory. If you do that rehearsal well enough it can eventually maybe go into long-term memory and then hopefully it would be there forever but you need to make sure that you've worked to store it appropriately and so long-term memory refers to that collection of information experiences and memory that we have sort of consciously attended to rehearsed enough to get it into our long-term storage but how we actually remember those long-term memories that we go through the effort of storing is also a bit foggy So there's been this fundamental shift in the memory literature. So for many years, and I think even in layman's terms, people tend to think of memory as being like, you know, a filing cabinet. And we can sort of dip in through the archives, pull out perhaps a video and replay it. But now we actually know that memory is reconstructive. So there is no video or sort of you know, footage that just unfolds and lets us review the original event. Actually, what the brain is doing is reassembling, trying to recreate the original pattern of firing that happened during the original experience and doing so in a way that it can reinstate that experience mentally in your mind's eye. And that process, the way the brain actually recreates that experience, is understandably pretty complex. So when we remember something, what we're doing is actually pulling up perhaps the overarching framework for how that event typically went, pulling up the emotional salience or the feeling that we know we had at the time, drawing on sensory perceptual elements, pulling it all together. And all of that's happening. And we just go, oh, I'm just remembering the last time I went to the dentist. And it's pretty amazing. And we're still trying to understand exactly how All of these things are happening so quickly to enable us to have that feeling of subjective reliving. Oh, my God, that's amazing. I mean, it's like almost like pieces of the puzzle are all over your Mm. brain and you're trying to do the puzzle and all this is happening in, I mean, not even seconds. Yeah, and so some of the most, you know, prominent memory researchers have even used that analogy of a jigsaw puzzle and trying to piece it together and reconstruct it so you're... Definitely I'm ahead getting, of the curve there. <laughs> I'm getting good with my metaphor. <laughs> yeah. So why is it that we're able to do all of these incredibly complex things with our brains? And what is it that separates us from the rest of the animal and plant kingdom? Is it purely down to size? We do have a bigger brain compared to, you know, rats and dogs even and we can see this sort of hierarchy in terms of how brain volume might relate to the complexity of the processes that it can support but also there are other animals that have much larger brains than us but aren't able to engage in the same sort of uh, cognitive sort of processes. 
So, no. So it can't just be a function of size. Of course, it's not that simple. So it's something about the areas that we have that are different to, say, for example, our non-human primate cousins. And we seem to have a lot more prefrontal cortex. So that's the region at the front of the brain that seems to, is more an evolutionary recent development. And that's where some people believe the seat of consciousness is, even though there's not one area in the brain that's, that is the conscious region. This is the region of the brain that's believed to give us the ability to be self-aware. It's sort of presumed to underlie personality, meta-awareness, our ability to consider someone else's perspective distinct from our own. So all of these things that help with agency and being, you know, a unique individual in the world. So it may be something to do with the fact that our prefrontal cortices are much more densely packed in and we have much more prefrontal cortex than other species. One thing that is clear is that there's still so many questions left to answer when it comes to the brain, human, animal, or otherwise. But Moran says that if we're ever going to put all the pieces together, it's not going to be through any individual effort. There's no way that one branch of neuroscience could ever unravel the, you know, the puzzle or the complexity of the brain all by themselves. It will have to be a very concerted effort. And it's you know, it's the lifelong work that we'll all be doing and we'll hopefully, I mean, my goal is that I can contribute some part of the puzzle, that something I've done will be meaningful in that broader scheme and that then the next generation can come and take that and keep going as well. But yeah, these aren't questions that I think will ever get resolved fully, but that's why the scientific journey is so amazing because we can discover and keep learning the whole way through. Thanks for listening to Branch Out. I'm sure Monica and Moran's incredible research into plant behaviour and the human brain has given you a lot to think about. If you want to learn more, check out their social media and web profiles to take a deeper dive into their fascinating work. The next episode of Branch Out is your backstage pass into an exciting project underway at the garden. What we're embarking on is, is one of the largest uh, digitisation projects for herbaria in the Southern Hemisphere. So it's extremely exciting. and groundbreaking in some ways for, for Australia. Over 1.4 million plant specimens kept at the National Herbarium of New South Wales are getting a high-tech makeover. So what we're going to be doing is capturing an image, digital image of each specimen and making that available online, uh, capturing the data that's associated with each of those specimens, so the who, what, where and why something was collected, um, and making that available online. Don't forget to subscribe to Branch Out, leave a five-star rating and a positive review if you like the show. I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and Joe Koning produced this episode of Branch Out. <laughs>